Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest, both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. This is just the way I am. I can't change. Have you ever said or felt that way, maybe about yourself or about a situation that you're in? Have you ever felt hopeless that things are never going to change? Because many of us believe in God, but we don't think we can change. And it's not that we haven't tried. We've prayed. We've looked to the Bible for help. We've gotten advice from people that we've trusted. But somehow nothing seems to happen. And it may get better for a while, but only to end up back at square one or even worse. And so we end up saying, well, maybe this is just the way that God made me. This is going to be my situation, my marriage, my work, my life, and it's never going to get better. Most of us have felt hopelessness on some level. Some of us live in a constant state of turmoil where we have haunting memories that make it hard to believe that there's hope, that there's a God that can love me and redeem the mistakes that I have made or that I continue to make. And some for others of us, hopelessness is more like a background noise that's often present, but we're not really aware of it. So when I hear people talk about having lost hope, like, you know, nothing works for me, I've done it, I've done everything possible, and I can't change, this is just the way I am, their discouragement is frequently followed by rationalizing. Well, it just really isn't that big deal, and lots of people have bigger problems than I do. So what are we really saying when we state, I can't change, it's just who I am? It sounds a lot like we're saying that God is not big enough to help me or you change. And that belief is really dangerous because it's a lie, it's not biblical, and it's a painful and disappointing way to live. So today I want to explore the fun topic of, um, of hopelessness, yay, um, but how we can get trapped in that kind of thinking and how do we help ourselves and those around us live in a way where we experience more hope, freedom, and growth. So let's just pray real quick and invite God into it. Thank you, God, so much that you are truth. And Father, we thank you that you are hope, and we thank you that you said that there is nothing impossible with you. So, Lord, we just ask that you would just wrap your spirit around us in a way that we hear your hope today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I believe in God, but I don't think I can change. When we feel this or think this, our natural response is going to be to disconnect from God. During that marriage series that we did in February and March, um, we talked about the fact that nearly 70% of our issues in our marriage are going to be perpetual, meaning that in any relationship that we have, we're going to have a certain set set of issues that are going to be ongoing. And so rather than focusing like we've got to solve this problem, we learn that we're going to navigate it in a more healthy, respectful, loving way. So perpetual issues are not just issues that we have in our relationships, but we also have our own set of perpetual issues, right? I mean, I've had um, some issues that I've navigated around for 30 years. I continue to do unhelpful or what I would say probably stupid things over and over again, but it's a trap when we resign ourselves to the lie that I'm always going to have these issues and and we give up, that there's never going to be any improvement in our marriage, never going to be improvement in my own stuff. Because when we have that mindset, we're failing to hear, although that we're going to bump up against these perpetual issues, we can learn to navigate them better and better. Things might get triggered, but rather than having it on a daily basis or a weekly basis, it goes to once a month and maybe even once a year. There is hope 
with perpetual issues. So how does hopelessness get embedded in our thinking, our feeling, our way of living? The first of three points that I'll make today engages this question and is backed up by research revealing that the main culprit of hopelessness is shame. Now, some of you might be saying, oh my gosh, I I don't want to talk about shame, but I don't think it's really an issue for me. But I want you to listen anyway, because research has shown that shame strikes a chord for everyone in our culture. To some degree, we just may not recognize it. Many of you um, may have heard or listened to Brene Brown. She's a licensed social worker, and she has a PhD in research. She spent over 12 years researching shame in our culture and tried to figure out how do we live a more wholehearted life. I can't imagine having a worse job than to research shame for 12 years. That would be depressing, you know. Um, But she did a TED Talk, and it is one of the most widely viewed TED Talks ever. And she focused on how shame affects us. And because her topic strikes such a universal chord, I wanted to see how her research, which is really very credible, I mean, the samples that she did, the extensive process that it did, it's quality research. But how does her research, does it line up with Scripture? Because it rocks my boat when, because I teach psychology, but it rocks my world when quality research only backs up what the Bible already says. I mean, God is so very smart and he's so good. And we may not always understand what the Bible says, but we do certain things because we trust that he knows what he's talking about. So for me, integrating parts of Brown's research that's shared in her book called Daring Greatly, and I all refer to it frequently, it helped illustrate God's truth and how we walk in more hope to believe that there is more and that he can truly help us change. Foundational to Brown's research on shame was her discovery that how all people are hardwired for connection, emotionally, psychologically, cognitively, spiritually. She states, connection is why we are here, and it is what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. So from a biblical perspective, I mean, that rings true, doesn't it? God created us for relationship with him and with each other. So with that, what is the definition of shame? Well, so for, for Brown, shame is the fear of disconnection. It is the feeling, shame is the feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. I'm not worthy or good enough for someone to love me. I'm unlovable and I don't belong. And the Bible says we are flawed. We are, we do sin. But God said we are so worthy of our love despite all of our flaws. So even at our worst, God still wants us. He desires to be in relationship with us. Now, Brown identified that shame usually shows up in 12 areas. I'm not going to talk about all those areas, but we can see it's a broad area. It affects all of us. But some examples of what shame could be is getting laid off of work and then having to tell your pregnant wife. Shame is my boss calling me an idiot in front of a client. Um, shame raging could be shame is raging at your kids having someone ask me are you due when i'm not pregnant or it could be flunking out of school not once but twice when we are defining shame it's really important to know the difference between shame and guilt the majority of researchers and clinicians agree that the difference between shame and guilt is best understood as the difference between i am bad versus i did something bad because guilt says I did something bad, whereas shame says I am bad. Guilt is focused on behavior. Shame is focused on self. So guilt says, I'm sorry, I messed up. I made a mistake. Shame is I am a mistake. 
So for me, when I hear the difference, it reminds me of this picture of a not-so-positive way to train your dog to not poop in the house, right? So if the dog poops in the house, you go and you shove their face or nose in it, and then hopefully um, that's going to motivate them to not want to do it in the house and do it outside. I'm not quite sure. Somehow they're supposed, the dog's supposed to feel really bad. So anyway, that's shame. When others or ourselves shove our faces into our feces, thinking that's somehow going to motivate us to change. Because if you feel bad enough, if you feel enough shame, you're going to have better behavior next time. So shame is not, I did something I regret. I did something bad. Instead, shame is, I am bad for what I did. And who wants to feel that? Um... I am bad for what I did. Because when we feel shame, we will use defense tactics. We're going to protect ourselves by blaming something or someone. We're going to rationalize our mistakes. We'll give a superficial apology because we want to avoid the situation and the thoughts and the feelings. So let's say that you scheduled a lunch with a friend and then forgot, only to be reminded when she calls you and you're at work and she says, where are you? And so rather than apologizing, shame would have us rationalize our forgetting. Like, you know, I told you this was not a good time for me to get together, or you might even lie. Did you check your email? I canceled this morning. You should probably check your spam folder more often. Um, The opposite of feeling shame, then, is feeling guilt. And guilt is identifying when we've done something wrong. It doesn't align with our values. So it would be, oh, my goodness, I I disregarded a friend. I, I was rude to a co-worker. I screamed at my kids. With guilt, we can apologize for a behavior I did something bad. But how do we apologize for who we are? I am bad. I mean, that can feel very hopeless. And although it's an uncomfortable feeling, guilt is a powerful and a healthy force. Like if I'm critical of Ross, it doesn't match up with my values of being kind and respectful and loving toward him. So me experiencing guilt would lead me to apologize for my behavior, understand how my criticalness affected him, and ask him for for forgiveness and maybe and make amends and maybe that would be for me to be more aware of where I'm being irritable and and so I can step back before I open my mouth. Research shows that guilt is just as powerful as shame, but the influence of guilt is positive while shame is destructive. Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes that we can change and do better. So even though our culture, I mean, it often promotes shame as a good tool for keeping people in line, it's not only wrong, it is dangerous. Shame is highly correlated with addiction, violence, aggression, depression, eating disorders, and bullying. Researchers do not find shame correlated with positive outcomes at all. There is no data to support that shame is a helpful compass for good behavior. In fact, shame is more likely to be the cause of destructive and hurtful behaviors than it is to be the solution. So if research says that shame is destructive, what does the Bible say? I mean, I grew up in a pretty religious background. Um, You know, shame was a song that we sang on Sunday mornings, I think. So I wanted to know, does God ever use shame or does he use guilt to motivate us in correct behavior? So I looked in the words for words like, in the Bible, for words like shame. And so, for example, God spoke to his people through the prophet Ezekiel. And this is what he said. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. 
Then when I make atonement for you and all that you have done, you will remember and be ashamed. Never again open your mouth because of humiliation, um, declares the sovereign Lord. So I don't know what your first response was, but I'm like, okay, what is that ashamed? He said it twice and there's humiliation in there. That does not feel good. But the Hebrew word for ashamed means to blush, to be confounded, confused, or hurt. There was no reference that God was shaming Israel to admit that they were bad. There was no sticking their faces in the feces and admitting that they were absolute jerks. Uh, The message that God was saying was that despite their behavior, he was going to be faithful. And when they saw his faithfulness and his consistent commitment toward them year after year, they would remember their choices and be saddened, hurt, even confused or confounded by his goodness. God does not say, shame, shame on you. You are so bad. He is saying, watch and see how good I am. And for I am faithful even when you are not. I could not find anywhere in the scripture where shame was used as a management tool to get us to make us feel bad about ourselves. The concept of guilt, however, is definitely used in the Bible and to helping us live a more life that's connected to him and others. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But first, let's get a little more clarity on what shame is and what it does. Can you remember the last time that you really felt ashamed? Maybe it was at work. Maybe it was when you came home and were confronted. Shame can pour over us like a car wash. And when we strongly feel shame, the prefrontal cortex of our brain shuts down. So if you can see the picture of a brain on there, there's this red part. Do we have it? And right there, that's the part, that prefrontal cortex is ability that gives us to think rationally, to strategize. And what they have done in brain studies is that they see that when we feel shame, that part of your brain shuts down. And the other part of your brain that does the fight and flight approach, that is triggered. So how do you have a rational conversation when you feel shame? How when somebody confronts you and you're like, ah, you're ready to do, you just can't, you can't think well. And so, which is why you might hear some statements like this when we feel shame. When I feel shame, I act like a crazy person. I do stuff and I say stuff I normally would never do or say. When I feel shame, I wish I could make others feel as bad as I do. I want to lash and scream at everyone. When I feel shame, I get desperate. I want to run and hide. I don't feel like there's anybody I can talk to. When I feel shame, I check out emotionally and mentally, even with my own family. Shame makes me feel estranged from everyone and everything I hide. When we feel shame, study shows that we're going to use different strategies that help us disconnect because we don't want to feel that pain, right? We're either going to move away by withdrawing, hiding, keeping silent, or keeping secrets. We're going to move toward where we might just try to make people better. Well, if they're trying to shame me, I'll perform more for you. Meet their expectations, or we're going to move against where we're going to try to gain power over them by being more aggressive, or we're going to fight shame with shame. So do men and women experience shame a little bit differently? Brown's research showed that all those 12 categories that we had, the primary triggers for women are how we look and motherhood. Because our value as women is often determined by are we moms or potential moms. Women are constantly asked why they haven't married yet, Or if they are married, why haven't they had children? And if you had kids, do you have more than one? And then you get questioned, gosh, if you have more than one, how close? You you had your kids too close together or you had them too far apart. And then we get feedback on whether we work out in the home or outside of the home and on and on. 
Shame for women rallies around trying to meet all the conflicting expectations of who we think we should be. It was a little different for men. The research showed that the most common message for men was just don't be weak. Um, There was an example that Brown gave in her book where a man describes his first experience playing football in full pads across from boys who their main goal was to flatten him, right? He shared, suddenly I was afraid because I was thinking how much it was going to hurt. He says, I guess that fear must have showed on my face because my coach yelled my last name and he says, don't be a pussy, get on the line. And I remember shame coursing through my body and I became clear about what it means to be a man. Don't be afraid and don't show fear. So I turned my fear into rage and I steamrolled over the guy in front of me. It worked so well that I spent the last 20 years turning my fear and vulnerability into rage. And I steamrolled anyone who was across from me, my wife, my kids, my employees. I don't know any other way out from underneath the fear and the shame. The message men get is don't be weak. Yet at the same time, they can be asked to be vulnerable. I mean, women may beg men to let them in, to share your feelings. But one man described this double bind. He says, men know what women really want. They want us to pretend to be vulnerable, and we can get really good at pretending. Um, He says, another man shared, my wife and daughters would rather see me die on the top of a white horse than to watch me fall off. Because you say that you want us to be more vulnerable and real, but come on, you can't stand it. It makes you sick to see us like that. Now, if that's their experience, we need to be really clear on what we're wanting from each other. I mean, vulnerability is critical in eliminating the shame that we're talking about. But who wants to risk sharing? Like, okay, I'm sorry, today I I realize that I'm a failure at work. You know, I can't meet my boss's expectations. When you are risking being that vulnerable, you could be criticized or belittled. And who wants to feel small? Because when feeling shame, the usual response for men is to either get angry or shut down, completely turn off. And then we see this negative cycle happen in relationships where a woman who shares with herself but feels shame when she doesn't feel heard or validated. So when she doesn't, when she feels shame, she goes into a cycle of wanting to provoke and she'll often do that through criticism. And then the man's response would be, I'm going to check out. I don't want to. I'm going to shut down. And then when he shuts down, she feels more shame. So she pushes and criticizes more. And when then he can get then aggressive or, or angry, just tell her, be quiet. It's a, it's a negative cycle. Shame never brings long-term change. So the third point is that since shame is bad, what do we do about it? We can't avoid shame. Um, it's part of our flawed and sinful culture. And therefore, it's critical for us to be aware of our feelings of shame. So our goal then is, how can I be more resilient to the shame that's all around? Brown's research revealed that the main way to move out of shame was to experience empathy, which is the real antidote to shame. Like, empathy is not just, is connecting to someone's emotion. It's not just about the event or what happened. It's about connecting, like, how are you feeling about this? And this information helps us to know what to do when we've sinned and messed up so that we don't fall into that trap of shame but experience healthy guilt. So the first step when we're dealing with shame is to talk. We want to talk to God when we want to talk to another person. Sharing your experience with somebody who responds with empathy and understanding. Someone who loves us and values talking about mistakes and doesn't shame us. Someone who can hold us accountable, but only after listening and giving empathy. Because Brown described that if you were to put shame in a Petri dish... 
In order to make it grow, you put secrecy, silence, and judgment. But if you were to put shame on a petri dish and you were to add empathy, shame cannot survive. So shame thrives on keeping it secret. So research and backs it up. In the 12-step program, they talk about you're only as sick as your secrets. The University of Texas did a study on what, ha- what happened when trauma survivors, specifically rape and incest survivors, kept their experiences silent. I mean, these were victims. These were people that did nothing to be ashamed of. Yet research found that the act of not discussing a traumatic event or confiding, confiding in another person could be more damaging than the actual event. And then conversely, when people shared their stories and experiences, their physical health improved, their doctor's visits decreased, and they showed slight decrease in their stress hormones. So again, we see research confirming the Bible's emphasis on each of us being in healthy relationships and community. Because there's much truth in Brown's statement that she says shame happens with between people, so it also heals best between people. Recently, I was struggling with shame but didn't know it. I had messed up. I had done some something stupid, and I, I couldn't shake it for days. And I kept rehearsing in my mind and mind, like, what could I have done better? What was my part? And it took me talking to somebody else for me to sort out what was guilt and what was shame. Because often what can get mixed up is when we are accustomed to be overly responsible or having a hard time saying no or just wanting to please people, we can confuse feeling bad with having done something bad. Because we want to meet other people's expectations, right? And so we get into thinking. And that's that shame piece. It's not guilt. And so that's where the Bible talks about, like, confessing your sins one another so that you may be healed. So part of me being able to, to, to talk about it, I was able to hear, oh, gosh, I really did mess up in that part. But this part was not mine to own. And so when we experience someone truly listening and connecting... Um, it also helps us to get to connect to God easier because in that process for me, I had this shame grid and I just wasn't able to shake it. Like how I just couldn't forgive myself. I couldn't move forward. Like I couldn't receive God's forgiveness in that. So empathy, how do we receive it from God? How do we receive it from others? And empathy, boy, it is so important with our kids. I mean, what is the first thing that you do when they tell you that they've messed up? Oh my gosh, what were you thinking? Like, how many times have I told you not to do blah, 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 blah. The first step we have to remember is empathy. Listen to their feelings and their thoughts. Okay, so you forgot to turn your homework in. Um, tell me, what, what happened? Tell me more about it. Because what do we want to do? We want them to own their experience. We want them to help work it out. We want to connect to their feelings of what it was like. Now, there's going to be consequences. Some might be natural. Some might be some that we impose on them. But we want them to experience healthy guilt and to own their behavior. Because most likely, if our kids know that we're not going to shame them, but they can openly admit their mistakes, they're going to come to us more again and again. And isn't that the goal? I mean, what we want to teach our kids is that when you make a mistake, you can go to God easily and quickly, and he is not going to shame you. He wants to be there with you and help you figure out how to make this better. So we just have to keep on working on, you know, keeping that crazy dad or mom self from exploding, right? So empathy. We want to learn how to receive it from God, from others, and also from ourselves. So tell me, how do you treat yourself when you've made a mistake, when you have messed up just once again? For example, some of you might just be uh, landing in a place of shame because you just screamed and lost it with your kids last night or on the way to church today. Um, so you get to practice right now giving empathy to yourself, right? 
Because we want to face our shortcomings head on. And this is not about saying that you're a bad parent, but it's looking, does my behavior match my values? And if it doesn't, what's going on? Where is the frustration coming from? Empathy first. Then you can move on to the steps that you want to take. Empathy toward ourselves is learning how to be more understanding, kind, in the midst of our mistakes and our sin. So when we fail and we feel inadequate, we don't ignore that pain, nor do we slap ourselves with self-criticism. Because most of us would never talk to someone that we really love and respect the way that we talk to ourselves in our own head. The Apostle Paul gives us a healthy example of how guilt leads to healthy repentance in a letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth because there were some issues of concern that he was confronting. So he says, I see that my letter has hurt you, Paul says, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Godly sorrow, the power of it. How do you welcome this kind of accountability in your relationships with others? Um, I'm gonna get, I wanted to read the Message Bible because it gave me a little more clarity on this truth. And so bear with me as we read it one more time from the message. Paul says, I know I distressed you greatly with my letter, although I felt awful at the time. I don't feel it at all bad now that I see it turn, how it turned out. The letter upset you, but only for a while. Now I'm glad, not that you were set, upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around. You let the distress bring you to God, not drive you from him. The result was all gain and no loss. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. And we never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets and end up on a deathbed of regrets. I mean, that's shame. That sounds like shame. And Paul says, and now isn't it wonderful all the ways in which this distress has goaded you closer to God? You're more alive. You're more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. Looked at from any angle, you've come out of this with purity of heart. And that is what I was hoping for for the first place when I wrote the letter. I mean, it is such a powerful example of healthy relationship. Accountability with empathy and then repentance leads to a more full life. So are you letting distress drive you to God? When do you when you do wrong and when you sin, do you look at head on or do, and see it where it doesn't match up with your web? values or the bible this kind of accountability does not bring shame so godly sorrow leads to the second step when we are dealing with shame and that's identify what you did wrong what do you need to ask for forgiveness for which leads to the third step which is repent ask god to forgive you and anyone you affected so know how your choices your behavior affected each other and then the last major step that we're going to deal with is um, the fourth step, fully receive forgiveness. When you confess your sins, do you, what do you believe and does your belief connect with your experience of God's forgiveness? For many, this can be a struggle because we may know that God in Christ Jesus reconciled the world, not just Christians, to God. 
right up there, that Second Corinthians 5.19. So we know that it's not just Christians that he reconciled. Um, Jesus took care of everyone's sin. He paid for everybody. Each person has to make a choice whether they believe in Jesus, what he did by dying on the cross for our sins and coming back from the dead. But Jesus provided the ability for every one of us. If we ask for forgiveness, he takes care of our sin. There is absolutely no debt in our account. We cannot earn God's forgiveness. Hebrews talks about how it is futile to cleanse our conscience from dead works. Um, What dead works means is that when we do something wrong, we try to repay God. Like, okay, I screwed up over there, so I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to give more money. I'll serve more. All in an effort to make up for our bad behavior. Making amends does not come from working hard to repay for our sins. We make amends because we're so grateful that our account has no debt in it. It's very clear. It's clear. We make different choices because we're so appreciative of God's forgiveness for our sin. Now, this point I have absolutely no research for, but I believe that women actually have an extra gift when it comes to remembering. And I don't know if you guys agree, but I can easily remember much better than Ross when it comes to like the first time we had our first disappointing conversation was um, April of 1985. And, yeah, Ross was wearing this one plaid shirt with this weird thing and these straps, and I really didn't like it. And he would cock his head in a certain way that I could lead to irritate me. And so, I mean, I can remember, and I remember pretty well. And it's a perpetual issue for us, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, but if any of any of you guys ever have this gift of remembering like I do, we all, we need to let it go. Because why? God is nothing like that. It's... It's not true to say that when God forgives, he forgets because, hello, he is omniscient, right? He has all knowledge. You know, how could he forget? But what the Bible does say is that he chooses not to remember our sins anymore. Remember means to bring it up again, recall, or hold it against us. God chooses to not bring up our sins again. And there's two scriptures. I mean, the Bible talks about numerous ones, but two of them were from Isaiah and one from Hebrews. And they're just examples of where God says, I will remember your sins no more. He doesn't throw it back in our face when we mess up. When we confess our sins and ask for forgiveness, he does not have this huge file cabinet on us where, like, when I ask for forgiveness and he pulls it out and he says, oh my goodness, Wendy, this is the 164th time you've asked for forgiveness on this sin just in the last six months, right? He does not have that. Um, so when we repent and ask for forgiveness and yet still feel shame, we can know that it isn't from God. When we continue to ruminate, I should have, I knew better than that, I am so stupid, that is shame, it's not guilt. Now guilt doesn't mean that we're not going to be disappointed in ourselves for what we do, and that's not going to feel good. And that's what we call godly sorrow. But guilt does not rip ourselves apart. It doesn't shove our faces in feces. We fully receive forgiveness from God and we make amends with him and with others and we continue to be led and moving forward on our path. So how do we see this lived out in the Bible? And I want to give just three examples. So Dusty or Lisa, that would be great. So how do we see this lived out in the Bible? Before Paul became an apostle, he actively sought and killed Christians. But when he becomes a Christian, he travels and has to interact with the families and communities where he killed their relatives or their friends. How does Paul walk and lead these same people he tried to destroy? How does Paul not just want to spend the rest of his days hiding in shame or disgust with himself for being so wrong and for the amount of pain that he caused? 
How does Paul feel the permission and receive the confidence to lead? The other classic we go to when we think of somebody who royally messed up um, but still got back in right relationship with God is David. I mean, he sleeps with someone else's wife and then has her husband killed. And then he goes about his business until the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him. David was a man who had followed God faithfully for years. So how does he do such heinous sins and come out on the other side? By avoiding it? By living in shame? No, David so fully recognized his guilt and repented. Experiences the pain, the disappointment, and he owns his sin. He prays and he tries to make amends. He grieves for how his behaviors affected others. But he believes in forgiveness. He was not a callous, uncaring man who treated forgiveness flippantly. This is a man who understood guilt, repented deeply, and grieved the consequences of his sin. And then the last one is this Mary Magdalene. She was a woman who lived her life as a prostitute before meeting Jesus. And after following him, she stayed with him. But wouldn't her past disqualify her from engaging in close relationship, particularly with men, and especially Jesus, because he was a holy rabbi? How do you think Mary navigated the social stigma when she wanted to be with Jesus, but other people did not want her there? They disapproved of her. They may even said to her, Jesus would have a better reputation and a better ministry if you didn't stick around. Mary did not live in shame. She recognized guilt, repented, and received forgiveness. So at some point, these individuals too may have thought, I know God, but I could be stuck in shame and felt like they couldn't change They could have been struggling with, I don't know how to live differently. But they were able to separate shame from guilt. They knew and experienced that forgiveness was forever. And they learned how to live in the freedom and hope that they too could change because God is that good. So I want us to pause for just a second. um, Because we believe that God's spirit speaks to every person. So I want you just to take a moment to pause and help and ask God to show you, where am I wrestling with shame instead of guilt. So as we close, I'd like you to take a moment. I want you just to sit back and maybe close your eyes. I want you to listen to a song. I want you to let God speak to you again about hope. That there is nothing so bad that he cannot help. And I want you to let his love strengthen you. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.